0: This is Justin Rothmarsh, and you're listening to the SASSholes. Holes.
1: Welcome to SASSholes, a show dedicated to issues within the software as a service industry. We are revenue ops with an edge. Jamie, Jason, KG, and myself, Pete, have a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions. Please subscribe <laughs> to, to our weekly newsletter. You like that, Justin? Justin Rothmarsh is the author of The Machine and Founder of Ballistics, The team at Ballistics builds customer service and sales functions for organizations that are looking for aggressive growth. Justin's big idea is that salespeople should do nothing but sell. Huh. No account management. Huh. No proposals. Huh. No customer service. Huh. No project management. Huh. Nothing but selling. This end state requires a significant redesign of organizations it also requires the elimination of piece repay, or what sales folks call commissions. Interesting. Justin, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thanks for having me back. But Justin, before we get to you, we got a sponsor. See, that keeps them in. This episode is brought to you by NeuroNoodle. Hey, parents and athletes, get a doodle of your noodle. That's a brain map before the season starts, so you have a baseline to compare it to. I think basketball players are starting to get going. They get concussions too. Hey, you get a physical every year, right? Get a brain checkup before the season starts. Schedule an appointment now at NeuroNoodle.com. Okay. Even before Justin, KG. Carney, Yes. Yes, Pete. Yes, Pete. My wife said I should do lunges to stay in shape. That would be a big step forward. Leave us some <laughs> comments on our blog at sassholes.net. Got any shout-outs, guys? Kyle Deemer, five years at ADP. Five
2: it means he's good. If you could last one year at ADP. It means you're good.
1: I'll say. Really,
3: is that is that really what the saying goes? They got 150 thousand employees.
1: Well, sure all I know is
3: 40,000 that are there for ten years, and probably ADP doesn't even know they're on the. They got their red stapler.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to say Kyle and Justin Ford were around. We brought Justin uh, in the last time. He took all that knowledge and got a big job at ADP, I think. Who do you got, uh, KG?
2: A uh, couple of nice guy shout outs. I've got a happy birthday to Chase Van Steenberg at uh, Coco Robotics. Justin, uh, th- this is another unicorn in uh, in Silicon Beach. They're a billion dollar Company they do robot delivery. Uh, they're on the west side. Some UCLA grads there. Happy birthday, Chase! Um, happy birthday to Jackie Burnett at uh, ZipRecruiter. She's one of the leaders over there at the on the customer success team at ZipRecruiter in Arizona. And a congratulations to J.M. Wilkie for being promoted to director of sales operations at Qualia. You know, Pete, we're going to have her on the show later on in the, in the seasons and, uh, and go uh, real deep in
1: revenue a JM, course. JM.
2: That's right. Aaron,
1: She's the bomb. Aaron Felton, one year at App Properties, sell them houses, get on the phones. All right, Justin, man, welcome back. I think it's the third time on the show for you. Is that true? Second, second. Okay. So
0: can you can give us a little I'm background on like, right? I'm like re, I'm like reflux. You get to experience me twice each time you have me. <laughs> <laughs> two, two
1: exits everybody out. So Justin uh, so you're you were born and raised in LA uh, where are you from? Australia.
0: Yeah. I was born in the UK, grew up in Australia.
1: Interesting. You started telling me tell us about the course of your progression. What did you start first? I get confused because I found you from the machine, but you have a company called Ballistics. What's the progression?
0: Yeah, I started Ballistics 27 years ago. I had been a minor, a small shareholder in another startup uh, in financial services, uh, which had started to become successful. But because I was a minor shareholder, I I decided to quit and start my own thing. I didn't want to spend my whole life toiling as a 10% shareholder for some other business. So I started Ballistics 27 years ago, and it, Ballistics has changed over the years. We've had a few different in, incarnations. We started off as a DM, direct marketing agency, and then we, we became a consultancy trying to sell the same ideas we talk about, we've been talking about all along. We became a consultancy selling fixed duration projects, and then we eventually ended up with the sort of subscription-based model that we have now, which, which is what we're sticking with. Oh really how does it how does that work rather than selling clients fixed duration projects which is i believe a fool's errand if if you're selling something that's non deterministic in other words it's a, it's practically impossible to map out exactly the journey that you're going to take a customer on at the outset it's a fool's errand to try and sell a fixed duration project with fixed specifications our breakthrough was realizing that we could sell it as an engagement a month to month engagement uh and we could say to clients, look, you get to choose how fast you go or how slow you go and how long you retain us for. And um, I'm not sure of anyone else who actually sells professional, professional because, I mean, all of our clients have a fixed end state in mind that they're trying to create. Right. Uh, and and uh, uh, I, I guess in corporate land, companies will, will basically retain and pay by the hour. But our market is kind of the mid-market. And I, and I think, uh, and, and we've given advice to technology companies to basically split their offerings into two components. The deterministic stuff, you know, the hardware and the software and sell that for a fixed price, fixed fee, fixed timeframe. And then take, take the non-deterministic stuff like the change management, coaching, all that stuff and sell it as a subscription. I, th- I think it's a, it's a great idea that's, that's, that, that's not well-recognized.
3: I, it almost yeah. sounds like a partnership more than a subscription there, right?
2: Your, it makes it that way because as soon as you have a
0: fixed, we used to pretty much have almost, we'd get into these contentious relationships with clients. They'd say, you, you told us you'd have this done in six months. And we'd say, well, we made it a condition of the agreement that you would maintain protective capacity in customer service. But guess what? You didn't do that. Your customer service team just blew up. You know, they all got sick of working till eight o'clock at night and three of them left. And now we've got to stop selling because you don't have any customer service capacity. That's not on us. That's on you. And you'd have we would have these stupid, painful arguments that, that don't benefit anyone. A question
3: there, though, do you see it more as a lot of these companies that are out there might not beef up and maybe hire a couple more RevOps people and use you guys as sort of a sounding board? To help outsource revenue operations for a company?
0: No, so we're builders. We will go into yeah. we go into organization, we build infrastructure. So we'll build customer service teams, we'll build mm-hmm. or rebuild, more commonly, rebuild. So but I'll say build. We'll build customer service teams, we'll build engineering teams, we'll build design engineering teams, we'll build um, internal sales teams and channel management teams and other variations on on sales. So people, people hire us to come and do the build piece. Now, sometimes they keep us around after it's built because, you know, we're providing a whole grab bag of services and we can continue to optimize it after we're built. But primarily people engage us to do the build.
1: It sounds like you'll have a a constraint there, Justin. There's going to be a fixed amount of people that you can take on if you...
0: Keep keep the subscriptions going, right?
1: You want to talk about yeah. the,
0: theory, the theory of constraint? Well, the constraint is our consulting team. You know, we, we hire consultants and each of them can work on four or five engagements simultaneously. So the key to making a business like mine profitable is no different from any consulting firm that you want to keep your team off the bench and fully utilized, fully activated. You want me to explain what TOC is? Yeah, go ahead we got a lot so, of new
1: sales reps, new managers. Yeah, you know.
0: so TOC is an approach to scheduling in a production environment that's particularly relevant in knowledge work environments. It's just, just, I mean, if you talk to any manufacturing person about TOC, they've all read the book, The Goal. So there's a book called The Goal that was written by an Israeli physicist about 30 years ago called Eliyahu Goldratt. And he makes this rather unimpressive sounding observation. And that is that, the output of any process is determined by the rate of work of the constraint, where the constraint is the bottleneck in the process. But it turns out in making that observation, he unlocks a solution to a problem that plagues anyone who works in a complex environment. And that is that, how do you make local decisions? Or more specifically, how do you predict, how do you predict the global impact of local decisions? In other words, if I make a mix of product A versus product B, or if I chase customer A as opposed to customer B, which is better for the organization as a whole? Now, you'd think it's an easy question to answer, but it turns out it's not an easy question to answer. And that is because when you have an environment where you, where you apply division of labor, you end up with this complex environment because you have dependencies. You know, person, a, person B can't start work until person B, A finishes whatever they were working on and as a consequence you end up with with bottlenecks appearing and what tends to happen is they bounce around all over the place if you're trying to make a management decision like should i chase customer a or customer b what you want to know is which is going to result in the organization being the most profitable but the problem is is if you win customer a or customer b the constraint is likely to move to a different location, which means the dynamics of the firm changes. So you end up with this impossible problem to solve. You end up with a trying to divine the behavior of a system which is essentially complex, you know, like the weather. Financial types have come up with a with a solution to this called cost accounting. And the insight was, well, the behavior of the system as a whole might be chaotic, but if you look at any of the individual components, the behavior of the individual components is deterministic so let's just make profit and loss decisions at the component level and then just sum sum it all up and assume that the profitability of the system is a function of the profitability of the components of the system but it turns out that that's bollocks Mm. unless you have what's called a a uh, balance line in manufacturing which basically means an environment where every resource is fully loaded the the system output is never a sum of of the, the local throughputs, um, Why not? but because you, you can do this really in, even if you're not a mathematician, you can do a really interesting exercise with Excel where you create a, a simple process with dependencies between resources. So resource, a does a bit of work, passes it to resource B, and then you can program in variability uh, because of course, there's no resource in reality that has fixed capacity. We talk about the fact that this machine has a capacity to machine 10 parts per minute, or this person has the ability to process 15 mortgage applications per minute. But, but it's always 15 plus or minus 5, or plus or minus 1, or plus or minus 12. There's always variability so it's never possible to build the perfectly balanced line because of variability. You never have perfect flow from one resource to the next to the next. You end up with a bottleneck somewhere. And when you have a uh, when you have a series of re- when you have a series of resources, one passing work to the next, what happens is that those is that variability amplifies across the line. So if you look at a, at a highly productive plant, what you end up discovering is most resources are not activated most of the time. Mm. So the behavior of a productive plant is nothing like what you would expect if you proceed from the assumption of a of a balanced line. Nothing like. Doesn't even come close to resembling. You know, a plant that mathematically has the ability to produce a thousand items per day, with the implicit assumption of a balanced line, in actuality, if well managed, would produce half that, because of the because of the impact of you know natural variability. Now. The whole idea behind six sigma is let's minimize the variability and it's good to do that. But of course, you never drive it down to zero any more than you drive waste down to zero. It turns out that cost accounting is a pretty poor way of making decisions because it's based on this assumption that's, that's, that's wrong. What TOC, what Ellie's solution did was, was provided managers, managers with, with a much more accurate, albeit still quick and dirty solution to the problem. And the solution involves choosing choosing the one resource that you would like to be the bottleneck. So you choose the resource which, when fully loaded, will result in the maximum output from the system. And then you deliberately build protective capacity at all other resources. So it becomes impossible for any other resource under normal circumstances to become the constraint. And then you increase the flow of work into the system until the constraint is fully activated. And as soon as the constraint is fully activated, you tightly couple the release of work into the system to the throughput at the constraint. And once you hit that point, you've now hit the the maximum level of of productivity of the process as a whole. But also you can use the constraint or the, the predicted impact of a change at the constraint as a quick and dirty approach to making management decisions. In other words, if you want to know whether to chase customer A or customer B, the question becomes, which results in the highest throughput per constraint unit? So customer A might generate more revenue, but customer B might generate more contribution margin per unit of constraint consumed. So you chase customer B, not not customer A. And in most cases, the conclusion that you reach with the TOC sort of decision support mechanism is the exact opposite of the decision that you would have reached if you tried to calculate the profitability, you you know, the unit profitability of each customer using the traditional cost accounting based approach.
3: Well, doesn't that also depend though on what the client's really going for? Because some clients are in growth mode and are all about selling and they don't care about the contribution margin they care about the revenue. Right. So even though your model, which I agree with Mm. holistically, they still might make the wrong decision um, for the long-term of the company because...
0: But if, they, if, you, really make if you make a decision it. that's suboptimal in the long-term, that's optimal in the right... In, in the, it's. I mean, there's only one right decision, right? Yeah. So yeah. you can't get to the future without going through the past. So the executive of an organization gets to choose, well, what game are we playing? And the game defines whether it's a right decision or wrong decision. There can't yes. be two games. In other words, you can't have one person in the organization who says, I'm going to make a decision with a view to the short term, and another person who says, I'm going to assess whether or not your decision was correct with a view to the long term. Now now we got people fighting for no good reason. Which actually happens so much in a corporation. Of course, of course, of course, that's exactly, I just described the modern corporation, right?
2: Yeah, you you know, uh, this is fascinating, Justin. There's so many startups these days that they're focusing on top line growth, just top line growth, top line growth. Profit be damned. Profit, it doesn't matter because we want to grow, we can optimize for profit later.
0: Well, well, saying- well, this is why VCs use the term unit economics. And interestingly, the only time that you ever hear unit economics used outside of real economists is when folks talk about startups. And it's a response, it, you know, it's a way of grappling with this because you, you know, VCs will throw lots of money at a company to chase revenue, but the caveat is you need to maintain good unit unit economics. Mm. In, in other words, at some point, if the music stops and everyone takes a seat, we want to make sure there are still seats there to sit on. Mm-hmm. And, I and mean, this- that's what went wrong with scooters, right? There aren't anywhere near as many scooters around as there were previously. And I think what happened at the beginning when VCs started investing in, in scooters, the unit economics was spectacular. But as more and more scooter companies piled into the fray, the unit economic went into the into the red, and now we end up discovering that scooters were still a good idea, but only for a small, only for probably one or two players, not for 150 competing companies. Mm-hmm.
2: You got it over your shoulder there The you know, the machine
0: mm-hmm.
2: you're, you're literally talking about building a, a, a machine of a, of a sales team. Yeah. Machine of a, of a, of a sales team and, What's what, you know, in my career, you know, reading book after book about, you know, sales process and and it's always referenced, you know, the idea of, gosh, you know, you'd never go buy a car if you didn't know that there was a predictable, consistent process that that car went to and Q, you know, QA and everything. And you wouldn't get into a car if you just, it was just sort of a random process. But in no. reality, as an if operator. If you thought the sales dude was
0: going to go out the back and knock it together himself, you wouldn't buy it.
2: You, you wouldn't buy it. That's ex- exactly right. And so, you know, everybody nods their head, Justin, and says, well, yeah, that's right. A sales process, this linked sequential step-by-step process. And we got to follow it as an operator for 20 some odd years, though. The reality is, is that most of the time, and this is the basis of your business, I'd imagine that most of the time companies don't achieve that type of real predictability for a lot of the reasons that you're talking about right now. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you, yeah. your business exists because of that. I, I paint a picture for our listeners of like the transformation that you would take a random process, a, a technology driven organization that's selling um, and you get engaged to uh, paint a picture for us. By the way, this becomes your advertisement, <laughs> you know, like, you know, tell us the story uh, about the, a, a transformation from a random haphazard process to a machine.
0: We So if you talk to a, if uh, I get very excited about technology companies because I love technology and I like, I like uh, technology CEOs, CEOs of technology companies. I find technology intellectually stimulating. Our consultants hate technology companies. If, if their, their, their advice is, that if they had their way, we'd stay away from them. Most of our clients are industrial, you know, manufacturers, distributors. The advantage for us of working with the industrial sector is that folks in that sector, they're playing a long game and they have a deep understanding of systems. Much, much deeper than tech people, even though tech people think they've got a handle on queuing theory and all of the fundamentals. We don't have that many examples of we've worked with a number of them there's a msp we've just been working with out of canada it's a it's a very large private equity owned msp that's doing f- fantastic things but i think a lot of tech people wouldn't feel that a msp mm. is really a technology company in the normal sense of the word the exception would be wise tech out of australia which is a s- Ten billion market cap uh, um, company. We've had you, you know a hand in their growth. It's not a good example for us. A better example of what we would do is we would go into a traditional organization that has a bunch of field-based salespeople. Mm-hmm. And, and those salespeople would probably be called account managers, meaning they're responsible for all sorts of things, and including mm-hmm. the ownership and management of accounts. Mm-hmm. And w- we would build a much, robu- much more robust customer service team. We would take away the ownership of accounts from salespeople. We would say, look, your job is to go out and win new annuities and hand them over to the operations team customer service is now a part of operations customer service is charged with doing a spectacular job of looking after those annuities that you hand to them so we want to see amazing on time delivery performance and we want to apply the same discipline to to all of the other transactional tasks that we would apply to on time deliveries so we want quotes turned around in hours instead of days we want issues resolved at you know all that stuff and and once we've done that we would build an inside sales team a team of of professional salespeople who work inside with headsets on all day, doing nothing other than chasing new business, and we would support that inside sales team with probably applica- a, a small group of application engineers in the in the field who run around and perform discrete tasks at the behest of the internal team. So, doing detailed requirement discovery, uh, demonstrations, and the like. And and if in the case of a detailed requirement discovery, they would feed specifications to design engineering in order to, which is, which tech people would call sales engineering or pre-sales, they call it pre-sales engineering, to do, you know, concepts and proposals and the like. And salespeople would just chase business. So a typical salesperson would sit on a list of 80 to 100 open ops. They would pursue those ops from beginning to end. And they would marshal the input of a cast of specialists to perform every activity that isn't strictly defined as a selling conversation. They have all the selling conversations. And if they win a million dollar deal, they get to ring the bell and celebrate it in spite of the fact they never left their chair. And uh, there was a cast of characters who were involved in, in, in chasing that business.
2: Justin, you've talked about getting rid of at-risk pay. First of all, what is at-risk pay? And and what in the world are you talking about? Let's get ready to fight.
0: So I don't call it at-risk pay. I call it piece rate pay. And uh, piece- what is And the reason I call it piece rate pay is because sales didn't invent this crazy idea. This crazy idea, came, like most ideas, came out of production environments, didn't come out of sales environments. It used to be in production environments, What would what you would do is you would you would divide up the work and allocate it to independent operators who would perform the work and charge you on a piece rate. And you still see this. If you go to Latin America, you'll find textiles companies who will sub work out to, you know, people who, you know, people who make garments and they'll get paid X number of cents to make each garment. So the correct term is piece rate. Now, it, 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 rather than answering the question, why would you eliminate it in sales? It's interesting to think about, well, why piece rate pay got eliminated in production? Because it got eliminated 20, 30 years ago. And the reason it got eliminated in production environments is because you don't, and we've already discussed this, you don't maximize the output of a complex environment by maxima- maximizing the rate of work of the individual contributors. And I never finished telling you the Excel thing. If you design design a system in Excel where, where you have dependencies and you attempt to load each resource, so each resource is fully activated, what happens is that work in progress goes to infinity and the output of the system goes to zero. Piece rate pay assumes that if we maximize the rate that each worker works, we maximize output. But that's not actually... If you have division of responsibilities, that's not how things work. Now... If your sales function looks like the picture that that movie, the founder painted at the beginning of the movie, you know, where Ray Kroc was driving around, dropping in on handbag, burger stands, de- demoing the mixed master machine. If that's what your sales process looks like, nothing wrong with piece rate pay because you've loosely coupled the relationship between the salesperson and the manufacturer, you know, you have a pile of inventory, you make stuff, you put it in the pile, and the and the rep comes by and grabs a couple, puts them in the trunk of his car and drives around trying to sell it to people. But in the modern in the modern organization, it isn't practical to loosely couple sales from engineering and fulfillment. They need to be tightly coupled. And if they need to be tightly coupled, then that means you don't want the salesperson to sprint all the time, which means it doesn't make sense to give the salesperson an incentive to sprint all the time. But if you make things worse by dividing dividing labor within the sales function, meaning the salesperson only has selling conversations, the marketing team is responsible for what salespeople call prospecting. In other words, finding folks for for salesperson to talk to. If the executive team is responsible for uh, designing um, the the propositions that salespeople are going to take to market. If engineering is responsible for solution design and proposals, customer service is responsible for simple proposals, order processing, issue resolution, um, you now have this complex division of responsibilities. To go to one actor in this fairly complex drama and say, we want you to sprint like your life depended on it is idiotic, mm-hmm. idiotic. If you really believe that that's sensible, you deserve whatever you've got coming. Somebody once
2: said to me, you know, gosh, uh, maybe we should pay our salespeople more commissions and that will result in more, you know, more productivity. And of course, you're saying, of course that's just as you would say bollocks that doesn't that doesn't translate you know you you keep paying them more on a piece rate basis and yeah. you'll get more productivity out of it and that's a load of bullshit
0: <laughs> Well it the, so the interesting thing is it it can work in certain circumstances and and uh, so I want to introduce this isn't my argument against commissions but there are uh, there there's an academic argument against commissions that, that was well summarized by Daniel Pink in that book um I forget Drive. what it's called. Drive. Now, he points out that in uh, there have been a number of academic experiments where they test the impact that, that uh, piece rate pay has on productivity in knowledge work environments. And it turns out that in knowledge work environments, uh, piece rate causes piece rate pay causes productivity to go down and to go down significantly. And the conclusion that the academics have reached is in knowledge work environments, the work tends to be its own reward and piece rate pay gets in the way of work. It interferes with the work. In other words, you're better off giving people an envi- a, a pleasurable environment to work in, give, giving them work that is fulfilling and allowing the work to provide or, or the productivity to provide motivation. And if you try and tamper with that, with, with, with kind of artificial stimulants, you end up um, doing more harm than good. Now, it would be tempting to think about sales as a knowledge work environment and all salespeople would argue that yes, 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 this is a knowledge work environment. But the interesting thing is I know from my early career as a sales manager where we paid people almost 100% commission and we recruited people like crazy to maintain a sales team. Oftentimes, the best performing salespeople were not the most talented communicators. They were the people who prospected relentlessly. You know, they made call after call, after call, after call, after call, after call. I had one guy, his name was James Krishna. I'll tell you his name because it's a fairly common name, at least uh, where he came from. It was a fairly common name. And James was exactly like that. He spoke broken English. It was very difficult to understand it, but he sold a shit ton of insurance because he called person after person, after person, after person, after person. Now, interestingly, if you gave an academic uh, 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 James to look at and you asked, is this knowledge work? they would probably say, no, this is not knowledge work. Now, it turns out that if you have someone who isn't doing knowledge work, let's say you have a guy with a shovel digging holes, turns out that if you have a person doing physical labor, piece rate pay actually works. The more you pay them up to a certain point, the more holes they dig. So there is an argument that in the most primitive of sales environments, Mm. with the most primitive of salespeople, you can increase productivity with piece rate pay. The problem is not a lot of, not a lot of salespeople and a lot of, not a lot of sales managers would want to argue that that is the, that is the nature of environment that, they have, that they're running. But you and I both know that there's a disturbing number of cases where that's exactly what's going on.
1: If you pay somebody 100% commission, you have 0% control
0: of what they do. Of course. Right? Of course. I mean, that's my, that's my big problem with it. It's like I don't want to make critical behaviors optional. If you come and work for me, I expect you to generate—I don't know—you know, let's say, three thousand dollars a day in uh, in uh, you know, measured over a rolling a rolling average, of mm-hmm. course. But I would expect you to generate three thousand dollars a day in value, and I'll tolerate two thousand. And if you generate four thousand, I'm 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 probably going to investigate you to figure out what you're doing illegal because it, you're obviously up to some kind of strange mischief. Whatever the behaviors are that, that result in a normal operator generating $3,000 a day, I'm going to make those behaviors compulsory, not optional.
3: The other problem with commissions is you don't get the real story anyways. There's no incentive for a rep to tell you this deal is going south and going south quickly because, yeah. uh, you know, they're going to get... The bad news is going to get discovered sooner or later. If they know it's going to go south, they're looking for a new job. Where I think bollocks really comes into play, Kevin, is when and I've dealt with this at companies where a rep says they're not, where a rep and managers say they're not selling enough because the quotas are too high. Now, I've never heard of that situation. I've experienced it, but I've never. I, I don't know why we would sit there and uh, have an appetite to suffice sales reps when they say. Well, I'm not selling because our quotas are too high. It's well, just the exact opposite. I'm selling as much as I can, and I can't hit quota. Well, then maybe
1: quotas are hold, hold on. You're a revenue guy. How do you go into a budget pay, showing that you're going to pay everybody's salary? The expenses are going to look too high, right?
3: Well, that, that is a huge – when you switch and say we're just going to pay everyone on their OTE or a little bit more than their OTE depending on where they're at usually – that's probably one of the most difficult things of implementing the no pay at risk to a company that's already been out there that is no longer owned by the founder, you know, yeah. owned by a PE firm. I'm sure you don't work a lot with PE firms and making this complete. Pivot we do, but private, so
0: private equity firms are easy to work with because they understand math. So it's easy. we love private equity firms. we love private equity, so the math the mathematical argument here is 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 nothing like what people make it out to be so if you if you employ if you employ a salesperson on an at-risk basis, maybe you employ them 50000 dollars a year with the potential to make three hundred thousand, let's say. as you acknowledged before, you don't have you, you or as, as Pete acknowledged, you don't have control over what behaviors they exhibit. Uh, And as you mentioned, you you, you have this reality distortion field, you know, whatever they're telling you is a distortion of what's actually happening in reality. And the consequence of both of those things is it takes you a year to fire them because even the most incompetent of salespeople has a pipeline that increases month after month after month. And even the most incompetent of salespeople have a reason why the pipeline is increasing and deals aren't appearing. And and of course, the answer is the big ones are just about to land, just about to land. So it takes you about a year before you've amassed the evidence that you truly need to be able to kick them out. And if you sum up how much you've spent them on them over that period, even though you're only paying them a base of 60 K, it sums up to $60,000 in our world. If we employ a salesperson, we will say, look, if, if the market value of, of a salesperson is 300 grand, we'll pay you 300 grand starting day one. But we're going to be measuring your performance from day one onwards. And you're gone in six weeks if we can't see that the trajectory that you're on is going to cause you to hit a steady state. That results in you producing the numbers that we need you to produce to justify a $300,000 salary within about 60 to 90 days. So the the total cost. That's
3: usually mathematically, right? I'm sorry, Justin. It's usually, you know, just for the listeners, I've always heard it's about five times OTE is where we want you to be. uh, So you need to produce, if it's 300,000, you need to be thinking 1.5 million a year. Right? Is that what you're thinking well, as well? At least, so this whole, at least in SaaS companies, who knows?
0: That you get, that's getting into a different discussion, which is what what multiple of salespeople's yeah. salary should you expect them to earn? And and that's a Pandora's box. But if we just if we leave that aside for one second, yeah. my point is that it actually turns out to be cheaper to employ someone, pay them the amount that you ultimately would expect them to earn, manage them properly, and fire their dumb asses after six weeks if it looks like <laughs> like they're not going to make it it's much cheaper than having the walking wounded staggering around like zombies for a whole year before you finally eject them from the firm because they do an enormous amount of damage to your organization in the process mm-hmm. it's not just a 60k you had to pay them it's the de- it's it's that they made you look stupid to all the other employees and they pissed off a bunch of other customers who one of your other more capable salespeople could have sold
3: there is a technology out there i know you like technology that allows companies to discover behaviors prior to a year. Because I totally agree with everything you just said. And -hmm. there's this new technology, I don't know how new, it's a couple years old, People AI, where they basically can monitor all activity of the sales reps, emails, LinkedIn profiles, phone calls, and and identify what they're really doing. And I think it's great exposure for anybody in revenue operations. Totally would adhere to it because what they do is allow you to uncover the truth on an account that's yeah. supposed to come in. These big whales are going to come in, and then you can look and say, no one in procurement is talking to you anymore, and none of the leaders are talking to you anymore. You're talking to an executive assistant and a, a lower-level person. You're, yeah. This deal is not coming in, and I can fire your dumbass now.
0: There's some old technology that enables managers to define whether or not their people are productive and to make that decision quickly. It's called Topper Management. Yeah. Supervision, supervision. So one of the problems we have with our client sales environments is there's no one who has any experience or any understanding of how to manage salespeople. And for me, it's frustrating because I started my career selling life insurance products. We knew, even though we paid people 100% commission, we knew back then that commissions did not motivate people sufficiently to cause them to perform the requisite behaviors. The requisite behaviors were too unpleasant for the money to be a sufficient motivator. So, so we made those critical behaviors compulsory. We said, you have to come to work in the mornings with your suit and tie on, and you have to stand at the telephone until you've scheduled your three appointments for the next day. You can't even go to the restroom until you, it was a military boot camp style environment. Now, some of our salespeople, this is 30 plus years ago, earned two, three, four hundred thousand $400,000 a year, which was a lot of money back then. But the money alone would never have motivated them. It was the fact that we put them in this, in this environment, this, this uh, uh, military environment.
3: You'd be canceled nowadays. In fact, oh, yeah, if you come be... back 30 years later, you could be under fire right now. We should edit that out of our podcast. Oh,
0: my God. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes.
3: Should, should revenue always be the responsibility of operations and not that? it?
0: Yes, revenue should be a, an operational responsibility, not a sales responsibility, obviously. Yeah, I obviously.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I mean, I doesn't read everybody your book know and that?
3: I'm sitting over here. My wife thinks it's. Uh, my wife always questions why I'm reading your book over and over again. Um, so you want
0: me to? Ex- you want me to explain why? Right?
3: I, I explain it to not to me. Explain it to <laughs> to your listeners.
0: wife. We have listeners. <laughs> people listen to this. No, three <laughs> people. Uh, well, we do. He says gonna, we says <laughs> we Three
3: people. We pay for them to
0: listen to it. So the interesting thing is not that revenue. Sh- shouldn't be the responsibility of sales that's not the shocking thing the shocking thing is that it's bloody obvious i'm going to point you to two observations and and i bet you end up agreeing with me that it's actually obvious so the shocking thing is that it's been obvious for, for as long as we can remember and no one's ever noticed it so here's the two observations the first is if you look at the revenue that gets booked in a typical organisation now there are exceptions but if you look at the revenue that gets booked in a typical organization over any reporting period, you will end up discovering that 70 to 90% of that revenue comes from existing customers repurchasing, right? Not every mm-hmm. business, but most businesses. If you make that observation in front of a salesperson, a salesperson will say to you, of course, these are valuable relationships. My role in all of this is maintaining those relationships to ensure they keep purchasing to, to which I would say, okay, so you are responsible for retention. Let's validate that claim. So to validate that claim, let's interview customers that leave, that defect and go to your competitors, and let's ask them, why are you leaving? So it turns out in most organizations, and there are exceptions, but in most organizations, if you check why customers are leaving, the top three reasons, and these are, uh, these are almost always the top three reasons, and they lead the others by country mile, the top three reasons are they're not happy with the vendor's on-time delivery performance, number one. They're not happy with pricing, number two. And they, or they're not happy with the product, number three, meaning either the attributes of the product or the product range in the case of a multi-line vendor. That's why customers no, leave.
2: No, no mention of the salesperson and the relationship that they no.
0: have. <laughs> if, if your customers tell you that they're leaving because they don't like the salesperson, then you have fundamental problems with your operational efficiency. Your organization has a whole bunch of problems. You shouldn't be even thinking about sales. You should be fixing those problems because if a if a customer leaves because they don't like the salesperson, it's because you've got a salesperson sitting there like the Dutch boy with his thumb in the dike trying to protect the customer from operations. But in normal, relatively well managed organizations, you know, ninety percent of revenue or seventy percent of revenue comes from existing customers repurchasing, and if customers leave, they leave because of Operations, which means operations should be responsible for revenue, Mm. and sales should not be responsible for revenue. Sales should be responsible for what I call new business dollars, and new business dollars is not revenue. It's the it's the net present value of new annuities that the salesperson has won. So in SaaS, this is a perfect example. The net present value calculation doesn't just sum up the stream of future payments. It sums up the stream of future payments and, and then discounts the sum for uncertainty and for the cost of capital. So the uncertainty that's inherent in customer relationships, if you do the NPV calculation is already factored in. What that means to a salesperson is you've just won a new account. They've signed a contract or clicked a button that says they're gonna spend 50 bucks a month. And statistically, we know that piece of business is worth Mm $12,000. We're gonna hold you accountable for $12,000. And we're gonna hand that uh, account across to uh, operations. And that means that customer success, which should be a part of operations, will do a proper job of onboarding that account. And then customer service thereafter will do a proper job of managing it. How long they stay for has nothing to do with the salesperson. The salesperson gets credited with the $12,000. And because we don't pay commissions, it's not like we're double counting revenue. It's just a metric that we use to keep score.
3: So fascinating. When yeah. follow, and when, when you don't follow this process, which a lot of companies don't, including one I work with, uh, what happens is all the sales leaders and sales management end up doing analysis on things that are not leading them to new sales, but mm-hmm. more pointing the finger of, "Hey, this didn't renew, and that's why," and this, you know, and it's it's so much time wasted in corporate bureaucracy it's amazing how this could be streamlined, but you almost got to streamline it. I don't just, in my opinion, is you got to streamline it before uh, before the culture, it, it, you know, takes hold and, the, and you know, the, the president yeah. is the next sales guy and, and has been doing it this way for 25 years or 30 years. Very difficult in those situations. I think it's probably best for you to come in right when the founders are trying to scale yeah. and thinking about moving on to that next, uh, you know, retiring or, or hoping that their business exceeds while they're no longer in place.
0: Yeah, we like to work for founder-led businesses in the sort of 50 to 300 million range because uh, they're big enough to do adventurous stuff like this. They've hit diminishing returns. So, you know, they have passed the stage where where they can grow the business just by dumb luck. Uh, you know, if you have a hundred million dollar business and you're trying to grow it at 20% per annum. There are, there, there are competitors who are hell-bent on ensuring that you don't achieve that. So dumb luck's not going to cut it. Uh, but at that scale, the founder's probably still involved in the business. I can tell a lot by the questions. If I'm talking to an executive, I can tell a lot by the questions they ask. Uh, progressive executives who are going to do a good job with this, what they're interested in, is this true? They're interested in, are these ideas correct? E- executives who are not so progressive who are going to screw this up, they always ask the same question and that's who else has done this. Oh. Mm. For me that's a tell. As soon as someone asks who else has done this, can you give me references? I'm I lose interest. I mean we still mm. may sell them of course, but it, for me it's like as there's only it's gone to like 40% whether or not they're going to have success with this
2: because they're not innovators,
0: they're not open. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. They're yeah. not so interested heard- in what they're not interested in what the truth is, they're interested with whether they're running with the right crowd or not. And I know I love we're coming your... up on
3: our time, but I, I just wanted to show you, I can't really get it on here, but here's your book, all duck-eared and everything. I read it all the time I knew exactly where it was.
0: <laughs> he's he's Jamie. This is
2: the most animated you've been on all the episodes. <laughs> he gets excited, uh, so by excited by this stuff. He's so excited. I,
3: Revenue operations. That's, that's my... I my love name. it.
2: I love it. Yeah, the specialization that you talk about, Justin, is is amazing. And I, uh, uh, you know... We're, my co-hosts here are coming from a company that believe that the salesperson owned the account forever. You know, we uh, you know, you sell it, yeah. you, you manage it, and and you have it forever. in, in a lot of instances, and uh, I I never believed in that. That's special, just like you know a factory is just like a assembly line. Uh, and at ZipRecruiter, we did we did this, uh, Justin. Now probably not to the degree that you would prescribe, but the salespeople would close new business and immediately hand it over to another entity, yep. period, period, end of story. We don't want them to be focused on the onboarding and the customer success yeah. and the ongoing relationship because we want them to get really, really good at one thing. And in fact, we took salespeople and broke them down even by channels. So for example, um, chat sales, just retiring their quota through one channel of chat. Chats would come in all they handled was chat, so they became specialists in that line. Phone sales, the inbound phone calls. We had a separate team that just did inbound, as opposed to a salesperson. And we learned this the hard way, Justin. We had salespeople that would take a chat, a phone would ring, and then we'd have leads saying, yeah. "Hey, call these leads," and that that challenge of uh, forcing them to choose. The, yeah, Justin, we were allowing the salesperson to choose what of those three channels they call. And we learned that the hard way and realized we had to get to a level yeah, of and specialization. Then you, punish people,
0: you punish people who use chat, but ultimately you want people to use chat because it's asynchronous rather than synchronous. Exactly. So that that level of specialization,
2: it, you know, it's 2021 and you come across it all the time. People don't yeah. always agree on that, especially, I'm sure, with some of these customers that you're dealing with where, you're selling long relationships where they're going to buy a, you know, a a shit ton of parts or something for a long period of time. Doesn't that relationship matter? You know, that you're going to, you know, I'm, I'm good at developing relationships. I'm sure you've run into that a ton of time with these, with manufacturers. Yeah.
0: So I have no problem with the word relationship. It's when you put an S on it, that it becomes problematic because my view is a vendor should have a relationship with a customer right? But the relationship should be between the vendor and the customer. So where you run into problems is where the vendor doesn't have a relationship with the customer because you have a salesperson in the middle who's trying to be the owner of the relationship. So people, executives say to me all the time, well, this is a relationship business. I say to them, well, isn't that tautological? Like, doesn't every business have a commercial relationship with its customers? But of course, that's not the point they're trying to make. The point that they're trying to make is in order to succeed in this business, you need to have lots of salespeople, each of whom has individual personal relationships with all of their accounts, to which I would say, ah, so what's wrong with a commercial relationship such that you have this requirement for all these personal rela- relationships with salespeople, which is I mean- a very interesting yeah. question. What, what 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 is the economic reason why a customer would rather have a personal relationship with a salesperson than a commercial relationship with the vendor directly. And there are a number of reasons why that might occur, but none of them are healthy.
3: No, none.
0: Justin. By the
3: way, we had that problem at our other company. And none of them were healthy. I would say you need to leave your company once your leadership says the differentiation of why we are successful is because of our sales reps. I would be like, go pack your bags and get get out of there. Yep. Now, however, I would say this, if they come out and say the reason why we're successful is because we have a unique sales process like the machine sales process, that works for me. That would be something I'd be like, I'm on board with that because That's there's scalable. not as many people, scalable, and there's not as many people doing that that should be doing it. you know. But when you say I have a unique sales staff and they're out there selling relationships and stuff like that, go get your resume polished up and go get a new job. Cause that's not, that's not long-term success, but a new sales process, a unique sales process that is scalable, that takes a lot of this risk out of the environment and has people focused on tasks to me is something that is unique in the marketplace and something more people need to be attributing.
1: Justin, another strong show. How do we send people to your website? How can Tech Stars find out
0: about you? It's Ballist Oh, text. Tech- yeah, we I I would love to do more with the technology industry. I I, I mean the rest of our team wouldn't but screw them. It's yeah. Ballistics, Ballistics with an X. B A L L I S T I X.com. Um Or my blog is salesprocessengineering.net. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And make sure you blow up more and more people on LinkedIn so I can have a good laugh with Pete. Like we talked about. I'm sure that's why people
0: join LinkedIn, right? It's so that people like me can snipe at them. Isn't isn't that the whole business? (laughs) (laughs) And and Justin, just wet
1: our beak. (laughs) I have a. Do you want to see something? Yeah. (laughs) That's hysterical. (laughs) Just See, we're we're two peas in a pod. Oh, my God. (laughs) Justin Rothmarsh, my man. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sassholes. On behalf of Jamie, KG, and myself, Pete, we thank you for listening. We ask for you to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our newsletter in the podcast notes. And you can always buy us a beer on Patreon. Come on, two, three bucks. What's it matter? Just wet our beaks. Patreon (laughs) slash Sassholes. We thank you for listening. Cue the music. Kevin Gaither, KG. Nice to
2: meet you, Justin. Hey, good to meet you. I think I saw you speak at the AAISP Leadership Summit in Chicago probably about 10 years ago. AAISP?
0: Is that the inside sales Mob?
2: Yes. Well, yes. Uh, So... um, Bob Perkins and some of those That's guys right.
0: over there. Yeah, I was you there. Know? I was there. Yeah, 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 long,
2: long time ago. I remember uh, being inspired by what you had said because I believe you were talking about salespeople not having commission plans, and <laughs> uh, and doesn't sound uh, like me. It doesn't, no. It did. He, that was it. It was not no commission plan and then like having a promotion path where their salary increases but not a variable commission plan or something like that. This same person I assume, yeah? Yeah. 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 Somebody years did years their years.
1: somebody did their homework. All right, this is gonna be good.
2: Yeah, no, I remember seeing him a long time ago.
0: It was that it or do you want me to say it again? Uh, put a little put a little Australian into it. Uh so we haven't got started yet. No it's recording. Okay. Well, it's I recording, always think the pre but- the banter's the best. Hey, do you guys do you guys watch uh I reckon it's the best of all the podcasts. It's called the All In Show. It's, yeah. I think number two rated. Those guys yeah, are just yeah, incredible.
1: Yeah, we're we're almost there.
0: Oh yeah, you, well, I mean you guys are incredible. <laughs> very too, <laughs> close. We're very close.
1: We're almost there. All right, fire that, that away, Justin. That's a
0: Joe Rogan idea, actually. He milks that. I'm, I'm trying to give you credit. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, do the intro. Hi, this is Justin Rothmarsh, and you're listening to the Sassholes. Wow, that was pretty good. I made it well, sexy almost, didn't I? I was, I'm not sure uh, Sassholes should be made sexy. You put <laughs> well, you your ass start, in sass. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what?
1: Well, Welcome to (laughs) Sassoles.